How you guys doing out there? All right. So I got to apologize ahead of time because I got a cold, so I'll try not to snarf or blow my nose or do anything awkward in the microphone. Hopefully I don't sound like I'm in a big tin can. Um, if you guys got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read the text and then we'll, uh, we'll dig in. Mark chapter 6 says, He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. That'll be what we'll look at tonight. Um, Blaise Pascal in the 1600s, he said this. He said, there is enough light in this world for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. Again, there's enough light in this world for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. We're going to talk about unbelief tonight. This, this text um, that, we're, that we're going to dig into is a perfect example of the unbelief of man's heart. We're going to look at um, uh, our Lord's heart towards unbelief, uh, our Lord's response towards unbelief, and lastly, what, we ought, to, uh, what ought to be our response um, towards unbelief. Uh, first, we're going to do some unpacking, and then at the end, I want to just kind of cue in on what is unbelief biblically, how do we combat against that. Um, but first, let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord, tonight for your people, God, that are called according to your purposes, Lord, that you are transforming, Lord, that you are making uh, into your likeness, God. I thank you, Jesus, that, that those of us that are saved, those of us that believe, God, tonight, Lord, are justified. God, there's nothing we can do now to earn our salvation. God, that all we have to look forward to, Lord, is sanctification and glory, God. That you are making us into who you want us to be for all of eternity, God. And I pray tonight that through your word, God, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, that you would cut deep tonight, Father. Lord, cut out the unbelief. Cut it out of our hearts, Father. Replace it, God, with only great faith. For you, Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to your people tonight through the word, the living word, God. Jesus, as we see how you walked, how you talked, how you lived among us, how you became like us, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged to know that you are our senior pastor, to know that you are our high priest. So, Lord, please minister to heritage, God, uh, through this word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's just go verse by verse here in chapter 6. We're not going to take a big chunk. I think there's quite a bit here that I want to look at. So verse 1 says, He went away from there 
and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So if you guys were here last week, <clears throat> Jesus had left and gone back across the sea, and getting to the seashore on the east side, um, a crowd gathered around him, and that crowd uh, wanting to see miracles. Uh, J. Iris came through, and J. Iris was, was a, a ruler of a synagogue, if you guys remember that. Do you guys hear a humming, or is that just me? Is there, there is a humming. Um, can, you, can you try to, David, can you try to help? Um, anyways, try to ignore it. Um, anyways, J. Iris came uh, in uh, asking Jesus to help to heal, his, uh, to heal his daughter who was at the point of death, so Jesus says, okay. Um, Jesus goes to heal on the way. There's the, the woman that has an issue of blood for 12 years, making her unclean, ceremonially unclean for 12 years. Jesus um, heals this woman on his way, and then once he gets there, he actually raises this little girl from the dead. Phenomenal story. We looked at that last week. So after that, context being that, it says he went away from there and came to his hometown, okay? Nazareth. Jesus was from Nazareth. You guys know this. Let's talk about Nazareth really quick. Really interesting. Um, First of all, let me just say Nazareth is not the place that when someone says, hey, where are you from? You're like, I'm from Nazareth. I mean, it's not like, oh, dude, I'm from L.A. or I'm from New York or I'm from Portland. I mean, you just don't. It's not something that you brag about. It's not something that you're proud about. Nazareth was somewhere that most people probably didn't even know existed, okay? Um, We know this because John 1, 45, 46, Philip found Nathaniel, it said, and said to him, we found him who Moses in the law, we found the Messiah, right? And what does Nathaniel says to him? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? So obviously you see that Nazareth is sort of known for being this nothing, this not of any really value place. Living in Nazareth is kind of like, you ever have those conversations with people that are in college? You talk to the one guy and he goes to like SOU or U of O, or Stream University. Where do you go to school? Oh, I go to, I go to SOU. Oh, right on up. Where do you go to school? Oh, I go to U of O. And then you got the other guy, right? Um, nothing against him. You got the other guy that goes to community college, which is fine. But you say, hey, where do you go to college? And you're like, oh, well, see, right now... Right now, I'm just going to community college, get some credits, you know, and then I'm going to go later. Like, you're kind of dancing around. You don't want to tell them really where you go to school because you're kind of embarrassed or whatever, which I think is silly. But I've seen that happen before. Like, people go to a university, they'll tell you. People go to community college, they're kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go to university. I just want to get my prereqs done. This is like Nazareth, right? Where are you from? Ah, well, you know, I lived in Nazareth, but I don't don't live there anymore, you know. That's Nazareth, Okay. Um, just a couple things. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament by Josephus. It's not mentioned in the Apocrypha or the rabbinical literature. So it's really not even of enough, enough importance to, to be added in some of these liter- literature things. Uh, it's uh, first mentioned by an obscure writer, Julius Africanus, some two centuries after Jesus' birth. No church was built in Nazareth until the time of Constantine in AD 325. So it wasn't even a church in Nazareth for 300 years after Jesus was born, okay? Um, Small town. Nazareth would have been a minuscule group of homes spread over 60 acres of rocky hillside uh, with a total population of probably about 200 at best. Okay, so small town. Now, I know about Nazareth because I live in the equivalent of Nazareth, well, I'm from, I should say. I'm from. I don't live there anymore. You know. I, I'm from the equivalent of Nazareth. Raise your hand if you guys have ever been to Wairika. Anyone ever been to? Wow, impressive. It's also called Nazareth in the Greek. Um, <laughs> raise your hand. I'll be even more impressed. Have you ever been to a town called Montague? Wow, I'm impressed. I grew up in Montague, okay? I think it's like 600 people. My wife, my wife makes fun of me because I've literally have like a story or an experience on every single street in the entire 10 streets of the city. Um, 
That's where I grew up, Montague. And, you know, I come up to Medford or go places. People say, where are you from? Oh, from California. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I don't really need to tell you exactly where, because you're not going to know where it is anyways. So I know all about Nazareth, because I grew up there. Okay, one horse town, nothing going on. Nobody wants to be there. Everyone wants to move. Everybody's depressed. Nothing really happening there, right? I'm sorry if you're from Montague. I love Montague. But that's just how it is. That's, that's Nazareth. You know, that's where I'm from. So, um... Just not, not an awesome place. In fact, funny story. Um, I used to be really into the music scene, and there was a band. It was like one of my favorite bands. I remember who it was now. And they were traveling through. They were on tour. And uh, Yreka's on I-5, right? So they stop in Yreka. And uh, a buddy called me, and he was like, hey, you got you to go check out the blog. They, they took a video of them in Yreka. And I'm like, oh, cool. So I get on, and I'm like watching it, and the guy's all like selfie shy. He's all, yeah, like... He did that, you know, because he had long hair. It's like, yeah, we're in this, like, really lame town called Wairika. And, like, there's not even, like, I don't even think there's, like, a good restaurant here. And they're just going on about how lame it was. just crushed my heart. <laughs> Favorite band in my hometown, and all they had to do was hate. So I know about Galilee, okay? Verse 2. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Okay, now this was customary. When a rabbi, um, when a religious leader would come into a town, it was customary on the Sabbath that they would be the guest speaker for that Synagogue. So that's why a lot of times, as we're noticing maybe through Mark, that Jesus finds himself in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So he's there, he's teaching. Many who heard him were astonished, okay? Saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They're blown away. It says they were astonished. And that Greek word for astonished is actually the word blast or to strike, Okay? So literally, like, blew their minds. Like, they, they, they literally, their minds were blown. Okay? They were stricken by the amazing speech and power of Jesus. And it makes sense, right? I mean, Jesus is the word. I mean, he is the truth. He is the life. I mean, he is the living word of Scripture. So you can imagine when Jesus steps up to the pulpit to speak, it's going to be good. I mean, he was the best teacher there ever was. They're blown away. They're astonished. They're stricken by the, the teaching ability, the wisdom of Jesus here. Now, why are they astonished, okay? A few things, if you want to write them down. Number one, they're astonished because to become a rabbi or a scribe or a Pharisee, um, you had to be an apprentice. You had to apprentice one, right? You had to spend years. When you, if you look at Paul, when Paul talks about um, how he became a Pharisee, it says that he studied under Gamaliel. So he would have spent years alongside that guy, studying and learning from him, being sort of like an intern, being a disciple, being um, someone that would follow him. Um, Jesus never did that. Jesus didn't have someone that he was a, um, an apprentice to, a rabbi or a scribe. So they would have been astonished by that, firstly. Secondly, they would have been astonished because... Jesus seemingly had no means in his local town to gain that wisdom. There's no college there. There's no um, vast library there. There's no uh, scholarly wise men that would have taken him under his wing to learn all of this truth. And Jesus knew the scriptures. I mean, he was the scriptures, right? I mean, he knew the scriptures. They would have been astonished by that. Uh, John 7, 15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Okay, interesting. Uh, the third reason they'd be astonished, uh, he taught with authority. He didn't just teach like I do when I get up here and I say, hey guys, look at how amazing God is. I'm not authoritative, I'm just a 25-year-old kid, but this is authoritative, pointing to Jesus, pointing to God, right? He didn't teach like that, he says, I am God. 
I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. So he taught with authority as one actually giving truth, not pointing to the truth, but actually giving the truth. We know that in Mark 1.22. It says, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. He's not talking about God. He is God, right? He's not writing about God. He is God. He's not pointing to God. He is God. He is the truth. Verse 3. They say in their response to this, they say, wait a minute, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Okay? I want to point out a couple things in that verse. Firstly, they, they refer to him as two things. The first thing is they say, is this not the carpenter? Okay, now, now it's not really necessarily an insulting thing to call him a carpenter. Um, calling him a carpenter would be um, like, you know, saying it, it was an admirable trade. It would be like any other trade that we would do today. Oh, you know, you, you, you drive a forklift or you pull green chain or, um, or you know, you, you lay drywall or, or you do floors or, or a manual labor job. But what they're saying is, hey, isn't that the guy that's just kind of average? <laughs> isn't that the guy that just has a normal job, or just a normal life? I mean, he, he's not paid to sit and read. He's not paid to, to sit and study the scriptures. This is guy, he's just a carpenter. He's just a Joe Schmo. He's just an everyday guy. Where did he attain this wisdom? And then secondly, they call him the son of Mary. Now this is more interesting. To refer to him as the son of Mary would most likely have been an insult, okay? Considering that to use the father's name was as normal as using today like a suffix. So in Hebrew culture, you would be referred to as a man. You would be referred to and connected to your father, and you see that all through, all through Hebrew scripture. I mean, you'd be referred to as your father. To not be referred to you as your father would either mean that your father didn't, wasn't, wasn't alive, or what more likely is to sort of dig at the supposed illegitimacy of Jesus, that he was, um, as they would claim, illegitimately born of Mary, right? So it was kind of a dig at him. Isn't this the son of Mary, that woman that had a son out of wedlock, that doesn't have a husband, Right? Jesus was, was born out of illegitimacy. Anyone have a translation? <laughs> uh, so it'd be kind of a dig at him there. It would be trying to, trying to sort of get at him. Also says they took offense at him, right? It says they took offense at him in verse three. Verse three. Um, why would they take offense at Jesus? Okay? Why would they take offense at Jesus? Now, the word for offense, kind of interesting too, you might know, the word for offense comes from the Greek scandalon, which I haven't really researched this, so don't write it down, but it sounds like scandalous, doesn't it? Scandalized. Scandalized. But the word literally means stumbling block. They were offended at him. They stumbled over him, which is really interesting. If you guys remember, Isaiah chapter 8, prophesying about Jesus, it says this, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. It was prophesied that Jesus would be like a stumbling block. Paul quotes this in Corinthians 1. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So why were they offended at Jesus? It was prophesied. He's going to be a stumbling block. Literally, they're going to trip over him. I'm going to trip over him. Just like the majority of the Jews, they stumbled over the person of Jesus because he didn't come how they expected, right? They thought they had it in their minds of what it was going to look like when the Messiah come, when, when the Messiah would come again. 
And it looks a lot more like the second coming. They thought he was going to come in power and rule and reign and take out Rome and set Israel as a world-ruling empire, right? Take away the tyranny. He was going to come and he was going to relieve this political tension that they were feeling with Rome. That's what they thought he was going to do. And he didn't come and do that. He came as a suffering servant. He came to bear the sins of his people. And they didn't like that. Jesus never did what his followers thought he should, right? I mean, he never did. Think about it. His family, they thought he was crazy the way he did ministry. His family came out to try to save him because they thought he was nuts. Remember that? What are you doing, Jesus? Go eat some food. Take a nap, you know? What are you doing? They thought he should rule and reign rather than be that suffering servant. Uh, Peter, remember Peter rebuked him for speaking of going to the cross. They didn't think that he should go to the cross. What are you talking about, Jesus going to the cross? You're supposed to, supposed to rule and reign, right? Jesus is like, no. His mother pressed him to do miracles before his time. People were constantly trying to force Jesus to be something, to do something that he would never, had never intended to do at that time. It's a quick application for that. You might write it down. Don't think you know exactly how God is going to work and show up in your life. Because if you do, you're going to be scandal on. You're going to be offended. You're going to stumble. I think a lot of the times the reason why we trip in life, we trip in our faith, we stumble in our faith, is because we have expectations about the way that God is going to work in our lives. We think we understand, we think we know the way God is going to have things laid out for us in our life. And a lot of times, guys, it's just not that way. These Jews, these these people from Nazareth, they stumbled over Jesus because he didn't show up like they thought he should. So therefore, they just assumed he wasn't God. Andrew Murray said, this is a good quote, he said, Beware in your prayers above everything else of limiting God, not only by unbelief, but by fancying that you know what he can do. That was good. Verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus said a, sort of responds to their attitude towards them. He responds with this truism that I'm assuming would have been kind of well known at that time. He says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. You guys have heard that before. Um, it was interesting studying that a little bit. Um, that's, that's a truism that's kind of found all through, actually all through Jewish and pagan literature. It's just a truism. You know, it's just true. Um, it could probably be equivalent, uh, if you guys have ever heard that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. You guys have ever heard that? Same thing. Prophet has no honor in his hometown. Familiar, familiarity breeds contempt, right? It's the, same, it's the same truth. The reality of what is happening here is that they are projecting the low esteem of themselves on the Messiah Jesus, right? How could this man have this wisdom, this power, and this authority when he came from us? You know? Familiarity breeds contempt. A couple examples of this. My brother's here so I can pick on him. I love my brother. He's six years older than me, okay? And his job in life is to keep me very humble, right? Anybody have an older brother? It's to keep me humble. doesn't matter how cool I think I am, how much I think I've accomplished, um, whatever I think I'm doing at the time, that, that's really awesome, and I, and I want to tell him. Here's what he says. He says, yeah, you're still a snot-nosed kid, right? I mean, he knows. Like, he's seen me in diapers, you know? He's seen me uh, just be a dork and a kid and just do stupid things. And he's just seen me. You know, he knows I'm just nothing. He knows I'm nothing special, right? And he tells me that. Why? Because he knows me. Another example, you know, my parents have given me so much wisdom. 
in my life. I remember as a kid taking, you know, now it's my job, which is awesome, taking music from my mom, and she would teach me all these, um, these different patterns and mathematics of, of music, which is awesome. And I'd say, yeah, whatever, mom, you know. Why? Because she's my mom, you know. I mean, what do I listen to my mom for, you know? She's my mom. This familiarity breeds contempt. It's just my mom. What is she, your dad gives you wisdom when you're a kid and, and tells you, you know, some things about finances or tells you things that you could do in your life to avoid pain. And you say, yeah, whatever. It's just dad. You know, what does he know? And then you grow up and realize they were right. You know, I use all the stuff my mom taught me about theology and about worship all the time. You know, it's awesome. I mean, I'm so thankful for them. But it's so funny when you're a kid, it's just that same thing. Yeah, whatever. It's just mom. You know, yeah, this is just Jesus. We know him. I mean, he was just building a coffee table for me like three weeks ago. What's he doing up there being all white? I mean, what's going on? You know, that may not be theologically accurate. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but familiarity breeds contempt. It really does. Again, just, just an application. Take it if you want it. Throw it right back if you want. You know, don't pass over the wisdom of people close to you. Just don't. Don't pass over the, pe- the wisdom of the people that, that, that you're very familiar with, with your, your husband, your wife, your, your mom, your dad, even your kids, with your siblings, with the guy that you don't even know very well just comes up. There, there's stuff we can learn from everybody. I think sometimes in our culture, because we have access to so many books and so many podcasts and so many megachurch pastors on TV and, and things like that, we can only sort of take advice from the professionals, you know what I mean? Don't do that. There's so much to learn from each other. Man, I'm so thankful for my wife. I mean, I learned so much from her. We learned so much from each other. You know, don't, don't let familiarity breed contempt. Don't, don't not listen to someone just because you know that they're flawed, because you know that they're, they're, they're weak, because you've seen them mess up. You know? I don't know, maybe that's a word for somebody. Verses 5 and 6. He could do no mighty work there, except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Quickly just note the humanity of Jesus here, right? I mean, this would be hard, you know? This would be hard. You know, Jesus is fully God, fully man. You guys realize that? I know it's confusing. I know it doesn't make sense. 100% God, 100% man, but it's true. Okay, so he felt all of the things that we as men feel. It was important that he did that because he was going to become our high priest and he needed to relate with us. When we struggle, he knows what it feels like. He was tempted. He dealt with all of the things that we deal with. He was fully God, fully man. Have you guys ever gone to your family and tried to share the gospel or someone that you know or love and just gotten rejected? I mean, that hurts, right? And it's usually, right, it's usually because, dude, whatever, I saw you three years ago before you were saved. I saw how you acted at the Christmas party. I remember how you were in high school. I remember the things you say. What are you trying to tell me about Jesus for? Familiarity breeds contempt, right? I mean, they, what are you, you going to tell me? I know, I know who you are. I've seen you. It's heartbreaking when you try to tell the people that you love the most. Now, Jesus loves these people. And this is his hometown. This is Nazareth. This is where he grew up. He wants to come in. He wants them to have life. He wants them to be set free. He wants them to realize that he is the way, the truth, the life. And they meet him with unbelief. I'm sure that grieved him. I'm sure it did. I know it did. It says he could do no mighty work there. Theological side road here. The first thing I thought of when I read this text before I opened any commentaries or studied anything was, could Jesus not do a mighty work here? We're not going to spend too much time on this, but, but some, some of our Pentecostal brothers would, would even say that only by faith can we access power, right? 
So by the amount of faith you have, by the power of it. But, so does that mean that Jesus, and they would take that for that, for that reason. And my thought is, is, could Jesus not do a miracle here? Could he not do a miracle? Now, keep in mind, too, that Matthew's account says he would not, okay? So it's half and half. <laughs> this one says he could not. Matthew says he would not. I really struggled. I really wrestled with this. Could Jesus not do a miracle because of their disbelief, because of their unbelief? Was, it, was his hands tied from actually doing the miraculous to them? I don't think so. Let me tell you why. Kent Hughes really helped me out with this. He said, um, Jesus would not be omnipotent. I'm sorry, let me start over. He would not... Sorry. Omnipotence... <laughs> wow. Omnipotence is not omnipotence if it is bound by anything but its own will. Okay, let me say that again because I just distracted everyone. Omnipotence is not omnipotence if it is bound by anything but its own will. Jesus was morally compelled not to show his power. Right? He was morally compelled not to show his power. I think Jesus could have done a miracle there. I don't see do. Because he's Jesus. He's omnipotent. That means he's all powerful. The only one that could stop Jesus from doing something is Jesus. He chose not to do a miracle there. Why? Because they wouldn't even have believed. Their unbelief had hardened their hearts. I don't want to spend too much time on that. I just thought that was interesting. It says also, it says that he marveled because of their unbelief. This is interesting. Jesus marvels not at their sin, not at their ignorance, not like, man, you guys are so stupid. Why don't you get it? You know, don't you hear what I'm saying? I'm giving you truth. I'm giving you the prophets. I'm showing you in Scripture who I am. He's going to say, man, you guys are so sinful. You're so prideful. You're so arrogant. You're so quick to doubt. No, he marvels at their unbelief. And Jesus only marvels twice. You know that? That we know of. He only marvels. He says that he marvels twice. One time was here at the, the unbelief. And the second time was actually at someone's belief, someone's faith, this faith of the centurion, which is interesting. So he marvels at faith and he marvels at unbelief. God's constantly dealing with our sin of unbelief. And it's powerful. Unbelief is powerful. Started all the way back in the garden, right? Singing about this today is so interesting. Eve's sin, her, her very, I, I honestly believe her very first sin was to doubt God, wasn't it? I mean, God made the garden. The garden was perfect. They walked with God. They had communion with God. Jesus walked with them in the cool, or I think it was Jesus, walked with them in the garden. And then what happens? Satan comes in and he plants the seed of unbelief. He says, did God really say? And then Eve says, well, I don't know. And she begins to doubt God the Father. Unbelief, that first sin. Even before the curse, we see unbelief. It's powerful. That is a powerful sin. I'm just thankful that Jesus is making, as a side note, he's making a new garden called heaven where we won't have to deal with unbelief. I'm thankful that Jesus is the new Adam that did it right, even though Adam screwed it up, right? That we find, him, we find ourselves as believers in the new Adam, Christ, not in the old Adam, because the old Adam is nothing but death, Right? We see unbelief in Noah's flood. God flooded the earth. Man had a chance. Would not, their unbelief would not allow them to come back to the Lord. Israel's unbelief in the wilderness. This one astounds me. I just can't believe Israel. And the, what are you guys thinking? You know, I mean, I mean it's me too, right? We're all, we're all Israel in that. But what are you guys thinking? Okay, so Numbers twenty twelve says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. They didn't get to go to the promised land. So God literally takes his people out of their captors' hands. He sends plagues. 
they, they, they go, they run away, and Jesus actually parts the Red Sea, these giant walls of water. I mean, talk about manifesting the power of God. Talk about witnessing the power of God. Talk about, man, if my belief was weak, it should be strong now because God just parted the Red Sea for me. They get out into the wilderness, and what happens? Unbelief, right? Unbelief. Then God miraculously gives them water from a rock, right, because they need water. Moses hits the rock, the water comes out, fresh water. What happens after that? Unbelief, right? Then they get hungry. God sends manna, literally bread from the heavens, quail, I think it was quail, so they could eat. Food supernaturally appearing. The power of God manifested. And what do they have after that? Unbelief, right? Come on, say it with me. Unbelief. (laughs) It's ridiculous. God led Israel with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, he literally showed up in glory, the cloud. I mean, it's insane. The amount of miracles, the amount of power that they witnessed, and yet their response and their flesh, their response as men who are fallen and women who are fallen was unbelief. And God was patient, right? What happened? You guys aren't going in. <laughs> no way. Not going in. You're going to die off. The whole generation is going to die off because you have no belief in your heart. You have nothing but disbelief. You have nothing but unbelief. So a new generation is going to come up and Joshua is going to lead them in and Moses couldn't even go in because of un- his unbelief, right? He hit the rock again. He, did, he disobeyed. Man, they're dumb, right? No, we're dumb. I mean, this is us, right? This is us. God provides. God comes through. I don't know. We're going to pay the bills this month. God takes care of it. What do you do? A week later, unbelief, right? I just don't know how God's ever going to fix this in my marriage. I don't know if God's ever going to fix this friendship. God fixes it. God comes through. God heals it. What do you do? Unbelief. I mean, it's what we do. God is so patient with us, is he not? You see, unbelief in uh, Jesus did miracle after miracle, yet they still didn't believe, right? The people, the crowds, the mobs that were around him, he did miracle after miracle after miracle, still didn't believe. Thomas saw the resurrected Christ, and he still didn't believe until he could put his hands in, right? Judas walked and lived with Jesus, saw almost every miracle he probably did. He saw the manifested power of Jesus, and he still had unbelief. Even his own brothers, right, didn't believe. Guys, you've got to understand something. The people, in your, the people that you work with, the non-believers, the people in your families that, that don't know Jesus, that have unbelief in their heart, they will do anything. They will do anything to continue to walk in that unbelief. Don't believe me? Look at our culture. Our culture is pro at creating unbelief. What is evolution? I mean, why, do people, why are people so holding on to evolution? I'm not a scientist and I'm not trying to demean any of the people that are a lot smarter than me. But really? I mean, evolution? I mean, think about, just sit that and think about that for a little while. This just all came from nothing? This just randomly, I mean, the thing, we can't even figure out how our brains work, and you're telling me that that was just random chance? It's ridiculous. What's the root of that? The root of that is that we as people do not want to believe. So we will make up anything that allows us to not believe in God. Right? That's what we're up against. We're not up against just the sin. It's not like, oh, I need to get my coworker to stop sinning. No, you need to get them to believe in the supernatural power of God, that he is the life, that he is the resurrection. We need belief, right? 
That's what we need to pray for our coworkers, that their eyes will be open. That's what we need to pray for our family members, that their eyes will be open to believe. Because, man, we're up against something heavy here with this disbelief thing, right? I mean, it's no joke. John Calvin said this. I couldn't believe this was a Calvin quote. Since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is open to all. There is nothing else to hinder us from entering but our own belief, or our own unbelief. It's a sickness. Unbelief is a sickness. J.C. Ralph said this. This is great. Unbelief is the oldest of the many spiritual diseases by which fallen human nature is afflicted. It's a sickness. And unbelief, just so you guys know, unbelief either grows worse or it's treated. There's no stagnant with your unbelief. It's either you're becoming hardened more or your faith is growing stronger. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax, right? There's a difference, and I want to point this out really quick too. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief, okay? There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Henry Drummond says this, Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honestly, I'm sorry, doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light, and unbelief is content with darkness. That last line's so good. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light, and unbelief is content with darkness. Content, <laughs> unbelief doesn't want the light, right? Do you guys real? I mean, do you realize this is the state that God found you in? This is the state that God found you. You didn't want that. You wanted yourself. You wanted your sin. You wanted your idols. I wanted my sin. I wanted myself. I wanted my idols. And God is so good and so gracious that he would save me out of that state. Amen? I mean, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. A slave to my unbelief, just like Israel constantly, constantly, constantly seeing the power of God manifested and choosing my own unbelief rather than to believe who he is. And his grace, his goodness has pierced through that. It's amazing. Faith is submitting yourself to who God is. Unbelief is trying to submit God to who you say he is. And unbelief is a willful choice to believe yourself rather than God. This is why, this is why Paul says the doxology in 1 Corinthians, and this is in closing. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrupulous are his ways. You, you have two ways that you can approach the truth of God, right? You can have two ways that you can approach the scripture. One is to approach every verse as an opportunity to doubt the validity and the authority of the Bible. You guys know people like that? They're just looking for a verse to doubt it all, just to throw it all in the garbage. The second way is to acknowledge that Jesus in his word is the ultimate source of truth and read every verse as a mystery waiting to be unlocked. So believers, we know what the truth is, right? And now we can approach the scriptures as a mystery waiting to be unlocked. It's where belief starts. Submitting yourself to say, Jesus is it. 
Jesus is the truth. And now like Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He just wants to dive in head first into the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge and the eternal mysteries of God. That's what I want. How do we combat this unbelief? How do we combat this unbelief? First of all, Jesus died for your unbelief, okay? He did. He did. And secondly, a sense of wonder and awe is how you can combat against unbelief. A sense of understanding the size, the grandeur, the greatness of God. And then just ask him, Lord, help my unbelief, right? (laughs) Help my unbelief. I want to believe. But man, I am prone to disbelief. I am prone to unbelief. Let's all stand, guys. The gospel is this, heritage. Would you bow your heads? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The light has come into the world, you guys. Believe on the Son of God and you will be saved. Put away all unbelief and submit yourselves unto the one who loves you the most, the King, Jesus Christ.